Hope you can hear the gong there. Hello and welcome to our virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World series. I am Tony Ganser, afternoon host for WCPN Public Radio here in Northeast Ohio. On Saturday, November 7th, Joseph R. Biden Jr. appeared to have both a historic number of votes and the Electoral College math to become the president-elect and, in January, become the 46th president of the United States. He's been out of the White House only four years, but the foreign affairs landscape looks very different than it did in 2016. The U.S. fought tariff battles on multiple fronts and saw even more strain on relations with China. Many European allies have been sidelined as some autocratic leaders have earned the U.S. imprimatur. Despite a high-profile meeting, there's still a nuclear threat from North Korea and shifting allegiances in the Middle East. If that's not enough, there's still the issue of worsening climate change in the U.S. leaving the Paris Climate Accord. And we see refugee and migration crises, potential famines in the poorest countries, and of course, that little thing of a global pandemic. Tonight, we'll talk with a panel of experts on foreign policy challenges facing President-elect Biden and what solutions we might be able to expect from him and his administration. We're joined tonight by Dr. Andrew Katz, class of 1954, Richard G. Luger, professor in public policy and chair of political science at Denison University. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Good evening. We're also joined by Dr. Catherine Lavelle, the Ellen and Dixon Long Professor in World Affairs at Case Western Reserve University. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, thanks for having me. And also with us, Dr. Pete Moore, the M.A. Hanna Professor of Political Science, also at Case Western Reserve University. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions, and I hope you do. You can text them to 330-541-5794. You see it on your screen there, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. Somehow they will make it to me on a, on a screen I have up, and I will be watching them throughout, and we will work them in as we go. So with that, we can begin. And I want to start by giving each of you the opportunity just to, just to respond to where we are right now, because even though Joe Biden has been uh, named the president-elect, we're still dealing with uh, Republican leadership and President Trump himself um, not really embracing the process of transition yet, which for foreign policy creates some issues as well as domestic policy. For, so maybe each of you respond to where we are right now, uh, kind of give you a few minutes to, to speak. Um, Andrew, you want to start? Sure. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's quite extraordinary. Um, we had uh, a, a, an election um a week ago with a record turnout, which is just fantastic. It's just great. Uh, very few incidents of disruption, which is also really great. Uh, it took some time to count the ballots, which is not that unusual. Uh, and uh, we had a declaration of the winner, uh, which we often have, uh, but we don't have an acceptance of that um, by the opposition party, uh, which I think is quite striking, uh, potentially quite dangerous. And I think in terms of foreign policy, it undermines what I think is an important uh, beacon that the United States holds to the rest of the world, which is this idea uh, of the peaceful transfer of power, 
um, and the idea that you respect um, your uh, political opponents uh, as adversaries, but not enemies. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, sort of a, a delegitimation of the idea of the loyal opposition um, in, in American politics. So um, I'll, I'll leave my thoughts there, and I'm sure we'll go on to explore some other items as we go forward this evening. Definitely. Uh, Catherine, you want to comment on this? Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, it's more of the same. We are in the waning days of the Trump presidency. And so what we've seen for the last four years um, is this style of kind of being pushed up against the wall to say something. I think at some point uh, there will be some kind of concession statement or something, and then followed by contradictions and backing off from that statement, probably for the, the years after he is out of office. So I, I don't see it as anything unusual or unexpected, really. I think he's trying to undercut the legitimacy of the Biden presidency from the very beginning in a different way, but also the same way that uh, there was this subtle undercutting of the legitimacy of President Obama with the bizarre birther story that just seemed to linger and never go away. And um, then, then every now and then a tacit, well, you know, this is, he was born in the United States and then, and then backing off from that. So um, it's more the same if you, if you didn't like this characteristic of President Trump, you're frustrated with it and you're ready to move on. If you like this characteristic of President Trump, then, then it appeals to you and it will preserve his uh, political uh, legacy perhaps for years to come. I think the biggest surprise for me at least is the Senate and, and the, the senators not following ahead, going ahead with announcing Republicans as legitimate uh, people who, who won their offices, and then somehow backing off from a statement on the presidential race when we're talking essentially about the same ballots. It's, it's just strange, and um, hopefully it'll be a period that passes quickly. Pete, you have uh, some initial thoughts on where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with I agree with all of those points, um, you know, but to build on them and, and to think about moving forward um, <clears throat> in a sense, uh, I think that, you know, in terms of elections in the United States, we often hear this argument that Americans don't vote on foreign policy. And that may be true in the narrow sense of sort of voting behavior. But um, in terms of the broader connections between um, domestic politics, say what goes on here in the United States and what 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 uh, animates American foreign policy overseas, we have to recognize that, you know, they're very strong links. I mean, for example, climate change and immigration are both domestic and and foreign uh, policies. But more recently, you know, the use of state violence in the United States against communities, uh, minority communities, vulnerable communities, uh, the outbreak of police riots in major urban uh, centers in the United States. Uh, these are not unconnected to American uh, wars overseas, um, uh, intervention, um, counterinsurgency. Um, so I'd like to frame this going forward as to recognize that the national security state in the United States, that thing that pursues foreign policy, is intimately connected with that which we call the carceral state in the United States, the imprisoning of large numbers of people, and again, the use of state violence. Or think about it this way, you know, is it very surprising that the national security state that brought us the abuses of Abu Ghraib in Iraq, if we can all remember back to the horrible photos and videos 
of American soldiers abusing vulnerable Iraqi prisoners. Is it so surprising that a state that would do that would also separate children from families at the border and then put them in cages? So I think that moving forward, whether it's Biden or it's a different version of Trump, American foreign policy and domestic policy are connected in ways that are much deeper and more uncomfortable than I think many of us are willing to um, admit. So just to follow up, Pete, do you think that as much of a disruptive force as Donald Trump has been against what we traditionally think of as uh, American exertion of, of foreign power and even implementation of domestic policy, as much of a dis disruptive force as he is, do you think there's more continuation in how things operate in the United States than maybe many people think about? Yeah, I think that's a good point because um, Trump has been incredibly dangerous, uh, not to people like me, but, you know, a lot of people with uh, in, in American communities. So I don't want to downplay the 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 disruption the the fact that families have been ripped apart um, in in foreign policy terms you know Trump has acquiesced at least if we're talking about the Middle East he's acquiesced to the Saudi Emirati war on Yemen which has created a massive humanitarian disaster he's acquiesced to the Israeli annexation of Palestinian territory and so on so I don't think I, I don't want to underplay that which is both rhetorically radical and then also some policies which can be extremely damaging. But I do want to suggest that the structural elements of American foreign policy under Trump uh, are not much different than um, the structural realities of Obama's foreign policy or the Bush administration. There's a great deal of bipartisan consensus on the types of wars and interventions that we've seen overseas. And so I do think that's an important recognition, both to see the differences and some of the breaks that Trump uh, has been willing to do, particularly in terms of international norms, and that which is more structural, the money we spend, the military basing that we uh, that is across the world, and the foreign policy commitments to regimes uh, uh, in multiple parts of the world that are far less than democratic. So yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. One thing that has changed is the strength and the um, uh, the resources behind the State Department. And Andrew, I wonder if you could uh, comment on this, what I'm about to read. This was from the Council on Foreign Relations this morning, uh, sent out in their morning email, a uh, quote from a piece. America's network of international relationships is its foremost strategic asset. Even the agency charged with uh, advancing U.S. interests through diplomacy, Department of State, has fallen into a deep and sustained period of crisis. And it seems like uh, a hollowing out of the, uh, the State Department uh, certainly is going to influence how America is interacting with um, different countries and furthering a policy, be it... Um, uh, a continuation, uh, more or less, of the status quo that Pete was talking about, or, uh, as others have argued, a a, a deep um, uh, diversion from <laughs> from what we know as as normal foreign policy. So, um, I would I would suggest that if the structural characteristics that Pete has um, referred to uh, are certainly powerful. But um, Donald Trump is is not just um, a leader uh, to a minor degree different from other leaders. Um, 
And one of the ways in which that is manifested is in the vindictive um, and crass way in which the State Department has been hollowed out, how career um, foreign service officials, um, many of whom are incredibly well-intentioned people, um, have either left voluntarily or have been pushed out. Um, we have the Secretary of State uh, later today um, who basically uh, talked about the second Trump term uh, on the horizon. Um, and, and these are, I think, um, outrageous declarations in the, uh, 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 insofar as uh, what the Secretary of State had to say um, and the way in which uh, the United States needs to present itself uh, requires people who are selfless, um, dedicated, um, and, and, and are you know, true public servants. And uh, the experience of the last four years has made that far more difficult and has made rebuilding a very high order and I think a, a very difficult thing to accomplish given the way uh, the government will be divided come January. Catherine, um, if I might uh, co-opt a phrase, America first, it seems like the the State Department is the agency within the United States government that is focused on America first. It's furthering America's interests abroad. It's uh, promoting certain ideals, whatever are declared throughout an administration. But going back to something you said before, that it seems like President Trump is trying to undercut uh, a Joe Biden administration even before we're getting out of the gate. Um, is this simply domestic politics, um, you know, being um, being imposed on foreign policy or is there some sort of gain to the Republicans um, undercutting the America first, uh, you know, uh, agency of, of our government and, and how it's uh, implemented? Well, I said that I think that these are the waning days of the Trump administration. And I think that what we need to look forward to is what is going to happen when the Biden administration comes in. And a couple of things will be a little bit different than the transition to the Trump administration. Uh, President-elect Biden has a degree of foreign policy experience. So he's going to come in with experience and he's already going to come in with people that he either knows he's comfortable working with or he's not. So despite what happens in the transition, I think he already has a vision, not only of foreign policy, but a vision of the Obama foreign policy and how he would like to see that different. So he's already written on this. So you, you got the foreign affairs email this morning. <laughs> Yesterday's foreign affairs email definitely came in with reminding us of the people that he published in uh, foreign or the council's emails. It reminded us of what he published in foreign affairs. And specifically, he said, you know, the, the first day I would I would change the child separation policy, my policy or the Trump administration's policy with respect to asylum. He wants to shoot for 125,000 refugees in the first year, moving up to restore our commitment to the international refugee community and the travel ban. Um, you know, end the ban on torture, uh, re-emphasize the role of women and girls in the world. So I, I think it's a little bit uh, of a waste of our time to focus too much on looking backwards on the Trump administration. And think about how uh, Vice President Biden differed from President Obama. So I think Pete made a couple of uh, really great points about some of this foreign policy is embedded and, and it isn't going to change easily. However, I think on some of those issues, uh, particularly on Russia, 
uh, uh, President-elect Biden was much more of a hawk within the Democratic Party than other factions of the party, certainly on ramping up troops in Afghanistan. And, and you know, I don't know if he agrees with me on this or not. He was much less willing to, to um, ramp the troops up when President Obama made the decision to do that. So I think that there's going to be a new vision. I think it will be his vision. And I think he's going to be pretty savvy in terms of how he carries that out. I don't think he's going to come in with the lack of experience both President Obama had and President Trump had. So even uh, George W. Bush, we're really going back, to, or even Clinton, we're really going back to someone who the last president who had this kind of experience was President George H.W. Bush, who had had a considerable degree of foreign policy experience before he assumed the role of president. You have thoughts on that, Pete? And it's, I agree. I think that it's a mixed bag. Uh, Biden's foreign policy statements, let's be honest, a lot of this is rhetoric, but it, it does depart in some ways um, from, uh, from, from Obama's policy, clearly from Trump's policy. But, you know, the other side of it is you read the New York Times interview with Tony Blinken, and he, you know, espouses many of the bromides of the, of the, of the, sort of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus, things along the lines of, you know, the world does not organize itself, uh, that we are the indispensable leader, that there are vacuums that are created. You know, I mean, analytically, these are problematical, uh, you know, phraseologies, but within the foreign policy establishment of Washington, I think this is also signaling a return to what they would consider, you know, in Ben Rhodes' terms, Ben Rhodes' former advisor to Obama, you know, the foreign policy blob. So the one thing that I would focus on um, in terms of if you want to read tea leaves, this is a chance for change in the future is who are the people, right? Who are the individuals coming in? What are their backgrounds? What did they rotate out of? Because one of the things, like when we talk about the State Department, it's true. Trump put highly unqualified people, right? So the leading diplomat for the Middle East is a guy named David Schenker. He comes from the Washington Institute of Near East Policy. He is the highest ranking a uh, uh, foreign policy official in the Middle East uh, in the in the administration. Um, he's emblematic of a, of a of a layer of of foreign policy officials that the Obama administration, I mean, the Trump administration is reaching, you know, to the, to the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. But it speaks to another reality, which is beyond Trump, which is that much of the foreign policy community in Washington rotates in and out of these positions. So. We can look forward to people like uh, Susan Rice, perhaps um, Samantha Power, certainly Tony Blinken and others that will occupy uh, these important positions. And so we have to ask ourselves, what were their previous positions when they were in that? Was there accountability for the failures of their policies? Um, what previous jobs did they have before they came into this administration? Because we do focus rightly on aspects of the Trump administration where there are, um, you know, a double dipping, you know, you're in policy and you're making a little money on the side. Um, that defines a lot of the foreign policy blob in Washington. And, and it's, it's not a coincidence that one of the richest counties in the United States is Fairfax County, Northern Virginia, um, which is not rich because it makes anything, but it's rich because it's a rent seeking arena in which most of our defense contractors are headquartered. So I would really focus on who are these individuals what are their interests and where are they coming from? Andrew, I, I want to give you a chance to, to comment on that, but also I'll pose this question and you can take this if you'd like a, a different direction. Um, 
I, I'm thinking about the disruptive force of President Trump and some of the things that have been seen as as positives even are um, breaking kind of a, uh, a a stagnant relationship with with NATO, for example, and getting more uh, contributions from NATO member states. He's definitely shaken up the United Nations, which is not known as a um, necessarily a, a energetic body. Um do you think that these are things that a Biden administration could build on or take in a direction to create something new? Or do you think they're kind of stuck in the blob, as as Pete was talking about? Yeah, I'm not sure what you're referring to when you say build upon. Um, but, but I make a few points here. Um, <clears throat> one is that um, given the, the way the Senate is likely to, to wind up, um, you know, who in the Biden cabinet is going to be able to be approved by a Republican Senate? Um, that's going to narrow very severely the, you know, type of people who are going to be able to um, be confirmed out of the Senate. There's also a very interesting point I'd like to make about Trump um, that hasn't been talked about very much. Um, for the past, really, five years, um, Trump has done what we call set the agenda. Um, it's a different agenda basically every day based on what Trump tweets out or says or does. And that's, that's all we talk about. And part of a consequence of that is that because the agenda changes constantly, there's never really a chance to gain traction on any criticism of any specific thing that Trump does. And there's all sorts of things that happen in the world that you know, are very difficult to rise to the attention of even very involved, very attentive, very attentive public. Biden's going to come into office and Trump is still probably going to be around and still going to be tweeting, but he won't quite have the same effect. What is going to happen is a lot of things that happen in the world, a lot of dangerous things, a lot of bad things that happen in the world um, will come to our attention. Um, and I think that there's a lot of uh, possible um, problems that can emerge around the world that Biden is going to be, you know, taking responsibility for either for good or ill. And so that foreign policy might just be a more prominent feature um, in, in our politics going forward. Uh, and in addition to that, simply because uh, Congress is going to be controlled by the or the Senate will be controlled by the Republicans, it's an it's an inclination on the part of presidents to try to make their mark, therefore, uh, in foreign policy. So that's another reason why I think that we're going to be talking more about foreign policy in the coming years. We've mentioned a, a few specifics, and I'd like to uh, uh, get to a few more now. I do want to mention the phone number again, 330-541-5794. You can text your questions or you can tweet them at the City Club. I'm already getting some uh, to pop up right now. I'm not sure who wants to take this. I'll pose it to uh, Catherine if you want to take it, and then anybody else can jump in. This is a question about China. And we were talking about how Biden might be different then Obama, the TPP Trans-Pacific Partnership, was such a big feature uh, of the olden days of, of U.S. policy, which we were supposed to be pivoting to Asia. It was going to be a new, a new U.S. engagement of the region. Uh, this question is, quote, how can a Biden administration, quote, be tough on China, as he said so many times, 
and at the same time have the trust of the communist leadership that he needs to work on so many issues. Uh, Catherine, you want to start, and then we can can go around. Yeah, China. That's a it's a tough one because of the the combination of China and trade, and I think that uh, you know the. What's happened in the country is different. We have a very different country than we had when we had the Obama presidency. One of the biggest differences I see is in, in policy terms, foreign policy terms, is just this whole idea that trade is an orphan. So trade that used to be the darling of both political parties now doesn't really have the full-throated support of either one of them. And so separating out the elements of China policy that are human rights that are technology cooperation or competition, and, and then broader trade manufacturing type issues really speak to different constituencies within the American electorate. Obviously, the technology industries are very important to California and Silicon Valley, very different from manufacturing issues that are important to those of us who live in Ohio. And then the human rights concerns might be more of a global uh, international interventionist uh, idea. So when uh, uh, Vice President Biden, <laughs> President-elect Biden was speaking on the campaign trail, and he talked about China. Yeah, it's tough. He he called Xi Jinping a, a thug. So on one hand, he could he could be uh, stronger. On the other hand, we haven't really, as a country, thought through what we want to do with China as a country in a systematic way. And that needed to have been examined, and we didn't do it. I think the big difference, though, that we're going to see in a Biden administration is working with allies. So I totally agree with what Pete was saying about who he picks and who he surrounds himself in the next couple of days. I think Susan Rice, it's going to be very important to see where she falls because she's played a very important role in the campaign and then after. Uh, some of these some of these former people seeing where they land, but then also looking to see what his engagement is going to be with our allies, because China is very important to Europe. And I think that uh, the lack of American leadership on how to handle issues like Huawei and, and the rest has really been a gap and a vacuum among advanced industrial democracies. And so that that's we're really going to have to watch that closely, even in the next week, what, what kinds of statements he makes. Did you have more to add, Pete? Or, yeah, or? I thought I, I agree with that. I think that's a great question because it gets at a real dilemma. Um, so, so I, I think Katie has talked a lot about the, the trade angle. I think that's that's one horn of, of the dilemma. The other, we could think about the environment, right? So, on the one hand, you know, China. So, I'm not a China expert, but colleagues that I read on uh, Chinese economic development argue that China is still in the stage of intensive energy industrialization, right? So that means, and then when we think about the, the carbon issue, uh, and we think about the fact that the environment is a transnational global issue, we also have to recognize that China has very large deposits of coal. Now, if we also think about the rhetoric that has come out of some parts of Washington about, you know, stand, you know, the a lot of this language, you know, standing up to China um, and uh, not letting China push its way through uh, suggests a, a far more, um, confrontational stance. But if China decides that it wants to use and utilize its coal reserves to feed its energy intensive further industrialization, uh, as opposed to, say, using um, also carbon burning, but slightly less polluting, say, natural gas or even, you know, God forbid, crude oil, you can see that if the United States is in the if the Biden administration, in on the one hand, is advocating to bring China in 
to the climate accords because this is a global global issue. But on the other hand, you have hawks in Washington. And I remember, you know, the happy dog event we did, like what the, the second one ago were about the, the discussion, interesting discussion around external election interference. The two speakers from Washington, from the think tank, were adopting this language of standing up to and confronting China as if this, you know, as if this was like the late 1970s or something. But these issues of negotiating with China on trade and the environment are incredibly important. And so the Biden administration is going to, you know, balancing maybe is the wrong word. It's going to have to decide, you know, which way forward is this administration going to go regarding in, in the narrow, in this issue of, of environmental concerns? Are we going to be multilateral? Or are we going to continue the same policies of the last 30 years that have not been meeting the goal of, 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 of climate? Andrew, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on China, too, because this is such a, a big issue. And I feel as an observer that China has been reduced to trade and coronavirus, uh, certainly in, in recent times. Um, but, you know, you have the issue of uh, the Uyghur minority and, and human rights. Uh, you've got climate, as, as Pete's mentioning, uh, certainly China's uh, Silk and Road uh, soft power initiative or influence play, depending on how you look at it. So it seems like there, there are many things that, at least as a layman, it doesn't seem like the United States has been engaged with China on so many important issues. And now a Biden administration is essentially just jumping in cold and see what happens. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Biden administration is jumping in cold in, to some res in, in some respects, but of course, um, I think Kate mentioned this earlier, um, you know, Biden does have a lot of experience, so uh, he's, he's read his briefing books, uh, regardless of, of what we might think of them. Um, you know, unlike back in the Cold War, in the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, which largely took place on the military and the political planes. Uh, economically, there was not a lot of uh, competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. When it comes to US and China, it's a multi-level diplomatic uh, game. And you have uh, you know, the, the uh, Chinese uh, in, in possession of a lot of uh, capital that they throw around the world. Um, that uh, also could, you know, be very helpful for uh, international economic growth. Um, you have what Pete mentioned in terms of uh, environmental issues, uh, the need for cooperation uh, with, with China on that. Um, you know, we haven't uh, talked about the World Trade Organization. Um, it, it continues to exist. Uh, is life going to be breathed back into it? And how is the Biden administration going to work on the China angle within the WTO. Uh, another issue, of course, that's of, of great uh, moment is Hong Kong um, and what is going on there and the response that uh, Biden administration is going to play to that. Uh, there is also uh, President, Trump, President Trump's uh, good friend, um, uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, you know, China is an important conduit for all sorts of material uh, and really for the, for the survival of the Kim regime. So there's a lot of different levels upon which the Biden administration is going to have to adjudicate U.S. relations with China. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, it comes forward. 
We're seeing a lot of questions, which is great. So we'll start to do kind of rapid fire. If you want to jump in, uh, please do uh, uh, to our panelists and please do keep the questions uh, coming either on Twitter at the City Club or the uh, text number is 330-541-5794. Uh, I'll pose this one to uh, Catherine, maybe. Um, President-elect Biden has spelled out many elements of his foreign policy. As he equally spelled out uh, defense and economic policies, how might these affect uh, foreign relations? I think in defense policy, the biggest initiative I've seen is his desire to re-up the START treaty with Russia for five more years. I think it's got a couple of days, like a week or something after inauguration day. And I think they would like to get a five-year extension on that. Um, in terms of other security areas, when he talks about foreign policy, he does veer towards the economic. He wants to have some kind of trade, at least what he said. He wants to have some kind of a trade policy, but one where Americans are able to compete. So, you know, how that's fleshed out is anybody's affair. He says he's not against uh, free trade agreements, but like most Democrats, he would say that he wants them treat, you know, he wants workers treated fairly and all the rest. I think the biggest question out there is that he has said repeatedly he wants to be, he puts it, he wants to be back at the head of the table. He wants to lead again. He wants to see America, the United States in this leadership role. I'm not sure how comfortable the American people are going to be with that. And I think what he's going to have to do is, is um, as uh, Andrew Peter pointed out, balance his desire to talk about trade issues and security issues with Americans' foreign policy concerns that are very much now centered around health and the transfer of viruses and diseases and, and um, other other concerns. And, and I don't know that Americans are gonna share that when he makes this statement about, um, it, it's an example of our power and the power of our example or something like that is what's gonna show the world. I, I don't know if Americans uh, agree with that. I also don't know if Americans are realistic about what their lives are going to look like when it when the United States is no longer the definitive trade or financial and, and other leader. I think we've had a glimpse of it in the Trump administration. And for some people, it looked good. For other Americans, it looked like a, a, a much less organized, <laughs> scary world. Uh, this next question is kind of related, uh, maybe. Uh, it'll be a round robin. Each of you can answer. Look into your crystal ball. Who would be the best Secretary of State and why? Um, uh, given all of the things we've talked about, um, both who can get through the Senate uh, <laughs> and, and what their purpose is going to be on the world stage. Uh, Andrew, you want to start and we can go around. Well, I'm available. Um, <laughs> we'll put your name in. We'll tweet yeah. at Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would imagine that um, a, there's going to be a you know foreign policy establishment Republican figure uh, who um, you know backed Biden. Um, that's going to be one of the top foreign policy intelligence defense posts. John I don't Kasich. know who that's going to be, but is it going to be John Kasich? I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to be Lindsey Graham. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, but I, I mean, it could be, it could be Mitt Romney just to stick it to, oh, to Trump. Yeah, but yeah, but a, I think he needs, <laughs> I, I think Biden is a, a seasoned enough uh, vote counter in the Senate to realize that Mitt Romney is more valuable um, in the Senate than in 
the, you know, the Republican governor of Utah who he would replace Romney with. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the discussion of, you know, who's going to be in that it could be it could be someone like Romney or the others, you know, back to my structural argument. Look, the State Department is not that important in American foreign policy anymore. Not not in the parts of the world where we really spend money and bomb a lot of people. So if you look at the if you look at the budget of say the U.S. embassy in Baghdad or Amman, Jordan or Cairo, I would wager that the U.S. military budgetary assistance to the country to include the U.S. basing in Egypt, Jordan or in the Gulf is far more important in terms of uh, what a leader in a given country is going to listen to. And, and I, I've seen this unfold in the last 20 years, just narrowly in the Middle East, whereby, you know, it used to be in the middle in, in, in an embassy, you would have an ambassador who was the ambassador of U.S. foreign policy. But in a number of countries, you have a military attache who has a multi hundreds of millions of dollars. You also have a CIA uh, a contingent. All three of these are siloed. Right. All, all three do not. They're not horizontally integrated at all. And so um, symbolically, in terms of rhetoric, who runs the State Department is important. We also have to recognize that much of what is driving American foreign policy, uh, at least the stuff that that we that we lament and that we feel is highly costly and has even had negative you know repercussions for our own communities in the U.S. Uh, much of this is not guided by the State Department. It's 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 other parts of the U.S. foreign policy establishment that have have moved ahead. So if Biden is going to make another, you know, again, if there's going to be a structural change, it would be good to see the State Department return to the primacy. Uh, you know, we're talking decades ago, but that would be uh, that would be a move that would be uh, a signaling real change. I don't know okay. if this. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Andrew. Just quickly. I, I don't know if this um, equation still holds, but at least a few years ago, the entire State Department budget was less than what the Pentagon spent on bands. <laughs> yeah, but they're great bands. That's true. Andrew, man, like I, the, the Marine Corps band. Yeah, they, no, I'm sorry, I'm not being, yeah. That's no. what you spend your money on, yeah. I'm sure somebody's frantically uh, Googling that right now. Um, <laughs> Pete, Pete, I want to stay in the region, and, and I can pose this uh, to everybody too, but the, the Middle East has been a focal point to some degree of the Trump administration um, trying to declare victories in, in, I guess, they're calling it normalizing relationships with uh, Israel between uh, different countries. Uh, this question specifically is asking about uh, the, the future relationship with Saudi Arabia and the aftermath of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi um, uh, under a Biden administration. Just a, kind of, a, you know, a, a free question. What do you think that relationship is going to look like or is it just return to status quo, as you were talking about? Well, in that sense, I think it's going to be a lot harder um, to return to status quo. Um, on the other hand, uh, I mean, and, and the reason it's going to be hard is is uh, is because I do think as, as much as there's structural continuity, in particular, that that assassination, um, the humanitarian disaster created as a result of the Yemen, uh, the invasion of Yemen, um, you know, has 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 created enough energy in Congress now to begin to seriously look 
at, at this relationship more critically. So if we're talking Saudi Arabia and then, of course, the Iran deal is connected to it and Netanyahu and Israel and the and the security establishment there is, is connected as well. So I think that um, on the one hand, there 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 is room, you know, to to change to 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 recalibrate, you know, to use uh, to use that sort of cliche in Washington. But here's where I think it gets extremely difficult. And, you know, to return to my example of Fairfax County, when you look at what the, the U.S. defense establishment is selling and who are they selling it to? Uh, and then, you know, Katie and I have talked about this. When you look at who holds uh, Treasury Secretary debt, you know, U.S. debt, the oil exporters led by Saudi Arabia are some of our most important debt holders. When you look at weapon sales, Saudis, Emiratis, uh, the Qataris, and increasing the Bahrainis are spending the amounts of money where there are benefits to this in the United States, but we have to recognize they're very narrow benefits. They accrue to a narrow slice of the American economy and to the rent seeking industries located in Fairfax County. They are going, they are going to put up a fight for any kind of basic shift in the American-Saudi relationship. For instance, if the United States, uh, as Tony Blinken and others have talked about, want, want to move forward and get tough with Russia, what do they want to do? They want to sanction Russians, right? They want to sanction their bank accounts. It's a very powerful, very strong weapon that the United States has. That kind of weapon could be used in spades against the Saudis. But the, but the, but the economic pain that would be felt uh, at some of our top tech and military industrial uh, companies is extremely high. And again, Fairfax County is quite close to Washington and many of the individuals that rotate in and out hold a view of Saudi Arabia that would be best summed up as, you know, they're really, really tough and we really don't like dealing with them, but we have to anyway, don't we? Uh, we can return to the region because uh, as all of these, there's so much to say, but we do have lots of questions. If we, you want to go back, please do. Uh, I'll pose this question to Andrew, maybe. Um, uh, you're, <laughs> you won the lotto. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so can you talk a bit about the transatlantic relationship? Uh, because there's been uh, much written about uh, the um, sore feelings, I guess you could say, both in Europe proper um, and and also Great Britain trying to recalibrate, as as Pete says, uh, the uh, the relationship. So, can you talk about that under a Biden administration and how difficult or easy it might be to uh, repair that relationship and be BFF again with with our, <laughs> our friends over there? Uh, well, I think certainly for the time being, the Biden election has unified Western Europe as it has not been unified probably since the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, so uh, whether that's going to hold or not, I don't know. Um, I think uh, it was interesting, uh, Boris Johnson um, did send his, his, his good wishes uh, to President-elect Biden. Um, I think that's a, a, a bit of a tell. Um, I, I would imagine that, uh, you know, for the, the that, that certainly when it comes to Western Europe, um, you might not know what kind of honeymoon uh, Joe Biden will have with Congress, will have with the American media, will have with the American establishment. I think he'll have a bit of a honeymoon with Western Europe. Um, next question, uh, Catherine, maybe, uh, what foreign policy issues should the U.S. focus on 
where we could see the biggest wins in terms of allies and repairing our reputation? Well, yeah, where should we? Um, foreign policy is so reactive that you have such a, a brief window that you can actually do anything with your own initiative. And probably to rebuild those relationships, if I were strategic and I were advising uh, the, the president to be, I would probably go with the, the handling of the vaccines and the coronavirus pandemic, because I think there's a lot of goodwill to be had there. Once these vaccines start, when it becomes apparent, which ones are going to be more effective, which ones might work in different populations. So some of them might be effective, but for example, the one that just the big trial from the Pfizer one, you know, has to be refrigerated over periods of, that might not work best in Africa, for example. If we can take, you know, what he says, be at the head of the table and, and try to resume a role here to bring out the more humanitarian side of the United States. And also what's great about our, our technology and our scientific enterprise and just how hard our uh, medical community has been working on this and get that back into the, the, the equation. I think that would be the, the fastest acting. Um, I think, uh, you know, with the transatlantic relationship, there's a little bit of a problem because a lot of what Europe, if we can think of critically about Europe for a minute, a lot of what European foreign policy is, is a reaction in the transatlantic relationship to what the United States proposes. And I think what it would be great to hear is a true European point of view, a true European perspective on some of these problems, like uh, Pete's pointing out in the Middle East, what uh, problems with NATO, problems with um, the Russian, the, the just the, the former Russian uh, empire. And, the, and what's going to happen is the Russian economy continues to disintegrate and, and the, the, those economic relationships are going to be needed to be rebuilt. So I think that dialogue would be much better if we could have it with a partner that's bringing a point of view to the table that we could then uh, have, have an exchange with instead of constant criticism of whatever it is that we're doing. Well, I will ask you this. I, I've not followed it as closely recently, but it was my understanding the Europeans were holding together the Iran nuclear deal when the Trump administration was kind of saying, we want a better deal. You know, we're, we're just going to walk away. And it seems at least to that degree, the Europeans were defending a point of view and, and defending, I guess you could say, the, the status quo, what was decided in the past, you know, telling people, well, just wait uh, and the next U.S. administration will just carry on where we were before. Is do you think that's fair to say? Or I think it looks like that's what's going to happen right now. I, although I I really d agree with the idea that we have to figure out, or at least we have to see who's going to come into some of these roles. I, I don't know that the Iran deal and and you know uh, Andrew and Pete might know more about this than I do. It, it was with American lead. It was negotiated. At least we were told with American leadership. So behind the scenes, how much American leadership there was, I I don't I, I defer to them. But um, but the idea is, here is that um, I'm not sure that was a true European idea. But again, when we get out, the reaction is don't get out. It's not this is this is our way of engaging Iran. This is our solution of how to handle the, the refugee problems uh, from the the Syrian conflict and, and all the rest. So I would, I'd just like to hear more of that from our European allies. You know, Andrew, did you? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would I I would add that on the Iran deal that that is that is one where the where the damage of the Trump administration I think is tangible because um, so I mean if I'm if I'm sitting in Riyadh and I'm working with the Trump administration I probably think that well even if Trump is not reelected 
if we trash the agreement now and some Democrat comes back and wants to get it back on, then we can claim we can get something back. Right. So there's going to be a price to be paid in Tel Aviv and Riyadh for the Biden administration uh, essentially coming back into the agreement. Right. So I, I think that dynamic is there. But we also have to recognize on the Iranian side, if you're sitting in Tehran, what in the world would it take for you to come back into an agreement with the Americans, right? Because pressure certainly doesn't do it, right? Pressure uh, has been on the Iranian regime since 79. Um, the demands from the Iranians are going to be quite high, one would suspect. I mean, what's, what's their guarantee that another real estate, you know, or reality TV show guy is not elected in the United States? And then we just go off, you know, we've preached about a rules-based international system, but Trump is only the recent manifestation of the fact that the United States, that's just rhetorical. Um, so the real test, and I agree, if you have the right people in, in, in that are willing to take the hits for this, to come back to come back to the Iranians with a deal that brings them to the table, gives them security and really brings them into the region in a way that I think the Obama administration was aiming for. In other words, this was not just about the nuclear deal. This was about bringing the Iranians back in. Then you could have some success. But I do think that the Iranian demands are, are going to be just as high as the Saudi and the Israeli ones. Andrew. Yeah, I would imagine that, uh, Biden is going to focus his foreign policy attention as well as his domestic policy attention for the time being on the virus. Uh, and once that is resolved, um, then turn to other issues. Uh, but I would imagine the Iran nuclear deal is something he will play some rhetorical uh, um, attention to. Uh, but I don't know if in the near term he's going to do a whole lot of uh, spade work on that. We'll stay with you, Andrew, for this question. Uh, but again, anybody can jump in. It's about India. Uh, how far do you think the Biden administration will go for promoting India-U.S. strategic relationship by facilitating India's entry into APEC or other agreements? Um, that's a, a, a bit outside of my area of expertise. Uh, I would say, though, that you know South Asia is a critical part of the world. Um, Pakistan is a country that is uh, sort of always on the list of potential flashpoints um, because of various reasons, uh, internal Pakistan, in addition with its relationship with India, with other countries. Um, you know, you have uh, Modi, who um, is, you know, uh, a, a populist in his own right. Um, so there's a lot of issues um, that uh, the United States can engage with with India both strategic and also importantly economic. Anyone else have anything to add about India? Uh, Pete, maybe? No, I mean, it comes back to the, to the, you know, the link with China. I mean, part of this drive for India is to use India as, you know, uh, a rather large buffer against China. India's leaders understand this. I mean, this goes back a long time of, you know, the Americans trying to play this role. The question is, you know, what is the Biden administration or would that opening be serious in terms of, of, of trade integration and other things that the Indian government has been um, focused on? Or is it really more of this a larger play against China? 
do we think that the issue of, say, Kashmir, for example, during the Trump administration, is that going to continue on into a Biden administration or uh, any long lasting effects? Oh, you're referring to your famous happy dog event that we did on Kashmir. Yeah, if people don't know, Tony was was quite a champ in a very, very difficult conversation uh, Thank you, Pete. on the yeah. west side of Cleveland. Yeah, I don't know, Tony. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it depends. I mean, these like the thing in Kashmir or in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the, you know, these are long running low, like, you know, low filtering conflicts that kind of spike every once in a while. And so I think in part, it, it matters on the conditions on the ground if it spikes again. But yeah, that could prove to be a difficult issue uh, domestically for the Biden administration if it were to still be the Modi government that would be pursuing those policies. I imagine you have thoughts on this, Pete, but I'm going to pose it to Catherine. Uh, do, do you think the uh, United States is going to return to the promotion of democracy around the world? Well, we certainly say we are. <laughs> So, uh, uh, you know, in the campaign, at least, um, uh, Vice, uh, Vice President, now uh, President-elect Biden certainly put that at the centerpiece of his ideas for foreign policy. And you could look at that a couple of ways. It doesn't have uh, entail as many uh, commitments, maybe, as uh, financial and otherwise as some other things do. So it's a, a, an effective rhetorical device, as, as we've been talking about all night. But I think that because this election has meant a debate about democracy for so many Americans, I, I would take uh, the president-elect at his word that that is going to be a very important component. I'll be interested to see what kinds of, if any, but I assume there will be some kinds of domestic uh, reforms. So there's been talk about uh, reforms to the judiciary system overall, about how judges are appointed, obviously extending to the number of uh, justices on the Supreme Court or term limits for justices on the Supreme Court. So as we engage in this discussion of democracy in our own country, it, it will obviously spill over into our, uh, as as foreign policy, as we said, as all American foreign policy tends to do, tends to, to spill over into these, glory, uh, these uh, global debates. So I think that that will, def democracy promotion will go there and and you know what will be interesting to see is if we have a, a, a some pushback against election interference or at least a global discussion about what is appropriate or inappropriate election because you know the russians will say well you know you interfered in our elections with your democracy promotion <laughs> that was you know we'll say well but we were promoting democracy we weren't picking a side but but so how we want to represent ourselves is is really uh, how we're going to resolve these questions across countries is also going to affect our own democracy. So it's going to be inescapable, really. Do you think, and I'll pose this to you, Catherine, but anybody can answer. Do you think that this transition period of President Trump pushing back against the results of a free and fair election in the United States is going to undercut any efforts that the next administration would have promoting democracy somewhere else? I, I think the global forces that are undercutting and, and, and undercutting democracy are pretty strong. So I don't know if it's just the transition that's the problem 
or or the interference in social media and and all the rest. But I, you know, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on this transition because what's going to happen at a certain point is the electoral college is going to vote, and then when people, you know, you've already heard stories of, of Republican senators privately calling uh, uh, Mr. Biden and <laughs> making their own pitch. I mean, even Lindsey Graham made a comment, even within all of the things he said about the election not being. Uh, legitimate, he said, but I would be willing to discuss candidates for Secretary of State with uh, <laughs> Senator Biden. So once someone's actually in the role, once they actually control the resources, I think in politics, the, the position itself is going to make all kinds of new friends for um, the president when he's inaugurated. And that's that's going to change the equation a lot behind the scenes. It'll it, The most interesting person will be uh, Mitch McConnell to watch, because I think he and when uh, uh, Biden were, were in the Senate, they had a reasonably good working relationship. And, and remember, Biden's a creature of the Senate, as is Kamala Harris, a creature of the Senate. So these are people who have a respect for legislation, a respect for cutting deals, working through the legislative process. It's not like President Obama who came in and, and everyone knew that he had uh, aspirations that were higher. These are people who had careers, uh, it, it, maybe not so much Harris, but Biden had a career there, so he has a lot of relationships to draw on. The next question is for Pete specifically. You got a shout out, Pete. Uh, will uh, Joe Biden continue President Obama's predator drone campaign in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and so on? Is there an appreciable difference in drone use between the administrations? Any chance of a moral reckoning with targeted killings? So... I, the you know the the use of um, standoff technology, uh, not just drones, but um, you know long range weapons like the kind of thing that uh, assassinated the the Iranian general uh, in Baghdad. One of the things about the real value of these types of systems to um, the military and to the national security establishment is in part the fact that they're not uh, there's not cameras flying with them. Right. So you take out uh, any kind of, you know, way of, of oversight in the sense of having reporters on the ground uh, in Iraq after 2003. And the other thing that's very valuable to the military establishment for these things is that, you know, um, a lot of the research uh, or at least some of the research I've been reading about how uh, public opinion in the United States works on things like war and intervention is that the American public is very sensitive when it comes to casualties, right? Like our public leaders and the elites are not very careful, right? They're willing to commit American lives uh, for, for very low stakes. Um, but the American public is, is extremely sensitive to this. And so the advent of these types of, of, of technologies fits quite nicely with Biden's argument to go leaner, right? To have uh, special forces and to, and to transition this large military network that we have of bases to a leaner, meaner sort of uh, counter, you know, and so this has the benefit of fewer numbers of, of troops, at least, you know, publicly known that are deployed. Um, but the real danger is that this makes it seem like, well, we can just do this for free, right? We can move around the world. And let's not forget, you know, the connection to domestic politics is really, really important here. Do we declare war anymore? Does the U.S. Congress declare war anymore? I mean, 
you know, the idea of forever wars means that we're also fighting and fighting and fighting, but it also means that we've almost given up any kind of democratic oversight to the use of violence, state violence uh, that the United States um, wields. And these types of technologies makes it much easier to continue down that path. So I'm, I'm very concerned with the Biden administration's rhetoric around this without any kind of serious structural change uh, in, in our in our military and their ability to believe that they can continue to do this without any kind of accountability domestically. Well, we've come to an hour. I do want to give each of you uh, an opportunity for final thoughts. We'll start with Andrew. Um, maybe can you give some guidance and all of you give some guidance to our audience? What should we be listening for? What should we be paying attention to uh, both in the transition, but also as a new administration comes in, in, in regards to the U.S. and foreign policy? Andrew, you want to start? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would like to make a point, not really about foreign policy, but about domestic politics in a slightly different vein than Pete's earlier comments. And that is that, um, yes, Biden will be be inaugurated uh, president on January 20th, but um, Donald Trump is not going away. Trumpism is not going away. Uh, and uh, I think virtually every initiative that President Biden will desire to engage in will be resisted uh, and will be resisted quite vociferously. Uh, and, and this is, uh, I think, very bad for the country and it's bad for the world. Um, I think a Biden foreign policy will certainly be more multilateral uh, than a Trump presidency. Uh, it will uh, make uh, us feel a bit uh, that uh, we, we've returned to a bygone era, I think, in some respect. Um, but uh, Biden's ability to really affect change, and I'm not even talking about structural change, uh, I'm talking about simple policy change, it is going to be impeded severely by the lack of, by, by the political polarization that I see continuing in the United States. Catherine? Yeah, I think that um, when we look to the future, uh, probably I, I, there will be a degree of people thinking that it's back to the past. But I think that the future, we look at what uh, what Biden's already said he wants to do. The quickest and easiest things that he wants to do with executive orders on inauguration day, he wants to back in the Paris Climate Accord, and he wants to rejoin the World Health Organization. There's discussion about getting back into the Iran deal, although that's not as clear as the first two things. So to a certain extent, of course, it's getting back to multilateralism. It's working with our allies, and it's much more the tradition of U.S. foreign policy. However, it's a different tradition than I, I think. If we went back, certainly in 1945, no one would even know of the environment. They didn't even use that type of terminology. They were they were looking at, at different uh, different problems back then. They didn't even understand the connection of the global um, ecosystem there scientifically as we understand it now. So it really is a new world. I think there's going to be a huge emphasis on on climate uh, and and on health, and these are good things as, as well as understanding how the issues interact with each other. So I think these are welcome developments. And, and if we wanna be positive about things, remember that foreign policy is the one area where the president has the most latitude. So it's easy to get down about the Senate or to worry about uh, the issues on the Supreme Court. But, but when President Trump came in, that was the one concern that people had. You can actually do something in foreign policy, as, as we've pointed out. Um, it's a question whether or not Congress even declares war anymore and how assertive Congress will, 
will be able to be because it is itself divided. So I think there's reason for optimism. There's reason to look for more cooperation. And, and maybe we don't want to go back to the world that we had before because maybe some of these issues were simmering. They needed to be rethought. And it's, it's a good time to have these discussions and to try to think about the best way to go forward. Thank you. Pete? Yeah, I'll just be brief. I mean, I agree with Katie. I think the world it has changed a lot. I think we are in a transition, whether it's been going on for the last 10 years or, or the last two. The big question for me is, will the foreign policy individuals and will the larger establishment in Washington recognize this is a new world? Or will they continue to act as if the world is basically circa 19, uh, 1992 and that the United States is the indispensable nation and the rest of the world looks to our leadership. Hopefully they'll recognize the world's different and adapt to that. Thank you all for that. And thank you, the audience, for joining us for today's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum on foreign policy challenges facing President-elect Biden. Our panel tonight was Dr. Andrew Katz, class of 1954, Richard G. Luger, professor in public policy and the chair of political science at Denison University. Also with us, Dr. Catherine Lavelle, the Ellen and Dixon Long professor in world affairs at Case Western Reserve University. And of course, Dr. Pete Moore, the M.A. Hanna professor of political science, also at Case Western Reserve University. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with the support of an anonymous donor and is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We do appreciate this partnership and all of our partners. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by many generous organizations, members, donors. You can see them all. It is a fantastic list. Cityclub.org slash thank you. I'm Tony Ganser. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you.